Hello, welcome to the Healing of Emotional Wounds podcast series. My name is Alan Mulhern. Today we're going to look at the relationship between client and therapist in more detail, particularly with a view to the work in stage three, the alignment to the deep psyche. Let us presume that much of the early, more reductive work, such as the therapeutic alliance, the analysis of character and family history, possibly the exploration of transference and counter-transference, and so forth, has been established. However, the alignment of the deep psyche and integration has special considerations of its own and is rather different from the earlier stages. It is difficult to heal one's wounds alone. Healing, therefore, often takes place in a dual relationship, or sometimes within a group. Psychotherapists and clients are in an intense relationship, relatively separated from the outside world, where transformative possibilities are heightened in this special setting. The healing energy of therapists, vital to the whole journey, require that they have access to the deeper layers of their own psyche. The relationship between the therapist and client is boundaried, but it is an unusual framework. Clients tend to be totally open about all details of their inner world, while the therapist may reveal little except their fee structure. This framework, however, is necessary for psychotherapy to work properly. It is generally not helpful for psychotherapists to reveal their personal lives or relate socially to clients. The therapy works best when the concentration is on clients' problems and the therapist is not involved with their personal world outside therapy. Strong demands that the therapist should be more revealing should generally be resisted and interpreted. For some clients this can be frustrating since they may require more closeness and sharing than is generally available in therapy. This rather neutral framework allows the emergence of the deeper work. Personal complexes, attachments and transferences have to be constellated, worked with and, where possible, resolved for the deeper work to take place more effectively. The therapist who intends to work deeply in the unconscious has a more archetypal rather than personal role for the client who seeks healing and this role can be ambiguous. On the one hand, with respect to the therapist, he or she is detached, and on the other, intensely involved. Which is to say, detached personally from clients, but at the same time, intensely involved with their progress. Therapists are not meant personally to substitute for the damaged attachment relationships of the client, nor to encourage extra-clinical attachment feelings to themselves. However, many a thorough psychotherapy progresses precisely by working through attachment relationships projected onto the therapist. In some cases, it therefore takes considerable skill for therapists not to become entangled in these and to help the client work through them. Nor is it helpful for therapists to live out their unfulfilled lives through their clients, no matter how strong may be the demand or desire to do so. However, in the deeper psychological work, events sometimes occur that defy normal boundaries. The deep psyche can be a field shared with another psyche, not an immediate personal property. 
To understand this better, one may think of many normal human relationships as boundaried, having distinct roles, with implicit rules attached. The rules at work, the rules with neighbours, the rules with strangers, the rules with friends, the rules with family, the rules with people you love. Those who are closest to you will be those where the overlapping boundaries of psyche with psyche exist. Those who are furthest away will be those with whom one has boundaries which are more rule-bound. So on closer examination, even in so-called normal relationships, like those in the family, or indeed any in which intimacy occurs, boundaries between people become blurred. A parent identifies with the child. Lovers merge. Friends share their inner worlds. And interdependence develops. In intimate relationships, the other becomes part of oneself. The psyche, defined to include its emotional components, is somewhat shared. There is an overlap, a common field. Consider the pain that the death or loss of a loved one can cause. Many describe it as losing a part of their body, as if the lost person were part of themselves. The more deeply one works in the psyche, the more the nature of the interaction changes, and the more a certain freedom is required from the rule-bound ego. In the deep psyche, normal boundaries do not exist as they do in conscious formal relationships. Nor for that matter do our usual conceptions of space, time and causality. Nothing one can be told can really prepare one properly for this experience. What is one's own individual psyche may no longer be totally clear. Identity is not quite what it seems. In close-up work in the deep psyche, boundaries can drop, psyches overlap, and the normal conditions governing inter-psychic relationships may temporarily disappear. The analyst should be prepared for many strange events to occur once the unconscious field is activated. These are moments of great opportunity, but also can be dangerous. This can be thought of as an intense intersubjective field in which the idea of the isolated mind is better replaced by the concept of psyche as an interreactive and shared field experience. This requires a different level of awareness of the therapist. During and after these experiences, if transferences arise, then the therapist should be prepared to consciously work through them with the client. Strong counter-transference reactions, that is, from the therapist to the client, may occur also, and generally should not be communicated with the subject, with the client, unless they are syntonic reactions. And even then, it is a matter of judgment whether this communication is helpful. Syntonic counter-transference reactions are concordant with the psyche of the client and can be useful for interpretation. Dystonic reactions are not in accord with the client's psyche, but belong to the inner world of the therapist and are not useful for communication. So with transference, these fundamental feelings, and with counter-transference, the therapist needs to consider whether his or her counter-transference is syntonic, that is, in accord with the psyche of the client, so we're genuinely responding to it, or it just belongs to themselves and is not in accord with the psyche of the client. If in doubt, keep it to yourself.
Persistent countertransference reactions should be referred to supervision. The emergence of negative transferences in the client should be paid careful attention and repetition of deeper work should be postponed until the negativity is resolved. A negative transference such as feelings of suspicion or paranoia or aggression or disappointment, they should be worked through before the deeper work in the psyche can take place. They're part of the primary work that needs to be done in analysis. So the deeper work should be postponed until the negativity is resolved, lightened, or very possibly such work should not occur again if the negative transference continues. A healthy, positive transference, for example, light idealism, but one that does not have excessive idealization, is preferable for the deeper work. That is, the positive aspects of the archetype of the healer can be constellated in the client, hopefully temporarily, projected onto the therapist, and then when the work is over, they can see the therapist for who he or she is, perhaps with their shadow components, and see them more realistically. And the therapist should have helped that to happen. For more rational types of therapy, that is, those that do not deal with the deep psyche in the way that I'm illustrating, work does not take place as understood here. Nevertheless, many different therapies do well for their clients. There is a great amount of good work done by more normal psychotherapeutic relationships between therapist and client. Such qualities as containment, empathy, enthusiasm, warmth, hope and insight go a long way to helping many people. Different techniques exist for dealing with clients' sufferings. However, some require work at greater depth. Wounds are greater and their need for healing requires something more from the therapist. It can be very frustrating for a client to require work at this depth, but be faced with a therapist who is not providing it. For example, a young man in his 20s went to an intensive psychotherapy. He knew from very early on that his therapist did not match him. His demands were too great. He nevertheless stayed a long time and worked through a lot of important material, sufficient for that stage of his life. Sometime after the therapy was finished, he had the following dream. I am passing the building where my therapy used to take place and can see through the window my old consulting room, in the middle of which is a tent. I go inside the room and enter the tent. There is a large drop as if down a cliff face. I see a ladder down which I am supposed to descend, at the bottom of which is my ex-therapist who is not holding the ladder very strongly. It is blowing about in a great wind. I decide I can't go down the ladder and instead proceed to climb down the cliff in my own way. By this method, I feel a lot safer. This young man never felt quite safe with his therapist. The ladder of the descent into the deep psyche was not secure. In fact, he did not want a ladder that is, the structure outlined by the particular school the therapist belonged to. Rather, he had to find his own unique way. In this case, it is not difficult to see that the therapist could not provide the right grounding and healing input for the descent to take place and the root problems to be tackled. The client never felt quite understood in the deeper exploration. Therefore, he could never open up sufficiently and the progress of the therapy was blocked by feelings of anger and resentment. 
These in turn were interpreted by the therapist as projections of the client's dissatisfaction with his own mother. Perfectly true, as he was to admit. But this was only half the story. The other half was that this client had to be met in the deep psyche in order for healing to take place. Young comments on such a phenomenon. The great healing factor in psychotherapy, he says, is the doctor's personality, which is something not given at the start. It represents his performance at the highest and not a doctrinaire blueprint. One could as little catch the psyche in a theory as one could catch the world. By personality, young at this point means the therapist's connection to the self. Jung not only differed from Freud on his view of the psyche and the functioning of the unconscious, but also on the nature of the relationship between therapist and client. Their differences on this point are at the root of diverging traditions with respect to therapeutic style and relationships. Jung's distinction between the analytic and synthetic stages of psychotherapy, equivalent to the early and later stages of the model used here, characterised the Freudian style as primarily analytic and reductive, while the style to which Jung himself evolved he described as synthetic and transformative. Analysis means to understand, to break up. Synthetic means to join together. The Freudian style is centred on an analytic stance of the psychotherapist in which interpretation is the chief instrument. When Freudian analysis is intensive, say three or more times a week, the conditions for strong transferences, deep feelings from the client to the therapist, develop. And this is called the transference neurosis, the understanding and resolution of which constitute the cure of the client. From the Freudian perspective, the interpretive independence of the clinician is essential. So the underlying transferences can be constellated and then interpreted. This is not necessarily the case for a Jungian understanding, or indeed of other therapies, neither of mine, which emphasise spiritual components of the transformative process. For these, analytic understanding of the origins of neurosis is often insufficient, since healing requires something more, a new relationship to the unconscious. Jung writes, Freud emphasises the etiology of the case, and assumes that once the causes are brought into consciousness, the neurosis will be cured. But more consciousness of the causes does not help. The task of psychotherapy is to correct the conscious attitude, not to go chasing after infantile memories. Naturally, you cannot do one without paying attention to the other. But the main emphasis should be on the attitude of the patient. There we have Jung making a clear statement that while one pays attention to the early reductive analysis, the family dynamic and so on, that is not the whole story, and certainly not the whole cure. Jung, in the course of volume 16 of the collected work, returns many times to his differences with Freud on this issue. He says clearly, Although I originally agreed with Freud that the importance of the transference could hardly be overestimated, experience has forced me to realise that its importance is relative. The transference is like those medicines which are a panacea for one and pure poison for another. Jung even doubts that the transferences occur all the time. Anathema in some of the Freudian camps. He says, 
The great importance of the transference led to the assumption that it is indispensable for a cure, that it must be demanded from the patient, so to speak. But a thing like that can no more be demanded than faith. I personally am always glad, says Young, when there is only a mild transference, or when it is practically unnoticeable. All these quotes are from Collected Works, Volume 16. The later synthetic stage of therapy constellates the transformative possibilities of the client. In order to facilitate this, Jung envisaged a different type of relationship which respected and allowed this potential to emerge. Thus, the relationship between therapist and client became less hierarchical and unfolding potential emerges, rather than being subject to reductive interpretation. The couch was no longer used so frequently. The client and therapist sat opposite one another. The therapist became vital to the healing possibility of the client. Indeed, Jung is clear that transformation of the therapist is also possible in this process. Quote, Between the doctor and the patient, therefore, there are imponderable factors which bring about a mutual transformation. I would now like to give you a brief case study showing some of these counter-transference reactions and how they can arise from the deep psyche of the therapist. This concerns John, who had been seeing me once a week for a year. He had many problems from his childhood and had discussed these with his previous therapists. Although his understanding of his problems and compulsions were considerable, he remained somehow blocked. His mind was excessively intellectual. His feelings were volcanic and prone to extremes and he was continually acting out in the outer world his inner paranoid conflicts. Despite possessing considerable knowledge of his emotional damage, very little changed in his inner world. Reminders that his excessive mental dominance was unhealthy simply reinforced his desire to understand his problems, but the mechanism of how to change eluded him. As I was listening during a session, I wondered how his mind could be turned off and how his inner world could speak. For ten minutes, I went into a slight trance state and began to pay attention to my body, especially the key emotional body centres. So it's not just paying attention to the client's body centres, the therapist pays attention to their own. I quickly experienced a pain in my stomach, clearly emotional pain. I paid it more attention and encouraged it to speak. It said... Get me out of here. This is intolerable. I am being crushed. Help. I next asked John if he would like to do a scan, quickly explaining the procedure. Light meditation, breathing exercise, awareness of the body centre and pain, and then allowing the centre to speak. He agreed and we began. After five minutes, I asked if he could detect anything in his body. He said no, but I encouraged him to stay there. He mentioned a sensation of vague pressure in the stomach. I encouraged him to focus on the breathing, but also to become aware of the centre of pain. During this time, I re-experienced the voice inside of myself. This is intolerable. We exited the scan after about ten minutes, and I inquired about the pressure he had felt in his stomach. He replied, he felt some strange feelings, but could not articulate them. I decided to tell him what I had experienced. 
sense, to use the technical language, I believe my internal reactions were a counter-transference, picking up something in him, and were syntonic, that is, in line with what was going on in his psyche. I decided to tell him what I had experienced, my trance state, the pain in my stomach, the voice, and what it said. I suggested this might not be my voice or complex, but his. I explained that the anxieties he experienced in the world were somehow mirroring his inner conflicts, and that a vital part of himself seemed repressed, in trouble, oppressed by his mind and its dominance. This repressed inner essential self was finding the pressure intolerable and was being crushed. He found this experience and interpretation startling but useful. It served as a milestone in his therapy. This was because it not only clarified things in the short run, but also meant he could work with this knowledge and integrate it in the longer term. Now, such techniques are not recommended for indiscriminate use. It would be ludicrous to believe that whatever one feels or imagines as a therapist must be a useful counter-transference. Even when such fantasies are accurate, it is not always prudent to share them, since this can destabilise clients. The usual recommendation is to be more circumspect in the use of counter-transference fantasies or feelings and work with them in the coming sessions, keeping them as useful knowledge. However, these podcasts are examining a more unusual therapeutic situation with a spiritual dimension in which healing components of the psyche are activated. The experience described above is possible because of the existence of an intersubjective field, a sharing of the psyche with another, which is possible when healing intelligence and the deep psyche are activated. It becomes possible for information to be transmitted across the field from one psyche to another, which may be subconscious in the client, but constellated in the therapist. Other therapists in different healing disciplines, such as craniosacrotherapy, experience this also. I do not normally share this information unless I feel the client can use it. However, when I do tell them what I have experienced on their behalf, so to speak, they do not find the process difficult to understand and appreciate such resonance. Notice, however, that this is not just another form of empathy, but, I argue, an active interchange in the deep psyche. Normally, the information and feelings generated are of a surprising quality, unlike empathy, where one can imagine how the other person feels based on understandable and normal sharing of emotions. After these initial considerations of the relationship between client and therapist, we shall consider in the next podcast in more detail the role of the psychotherapist in stage three of the healing process, here termed the alignment to the deep psyche. There are, in my experience, four areas to focus on for psychotherapists. First of all, to attune to the deep psyche of the client. Secondly, to help locate and express wounds as fully as possible. Thirdly, to help clarify, challenge and, where possible, clear out the negativity within the psyche of the client and four to stimulate the natural healing energy and where required contribute their own to aid this process within the client and it's to these points we'll turn in the next podcast i hope you can join me then